1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 10. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphans by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we were all destined for them. In fact, we were with you. We kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Amen. Well, thank you, Grace, for reading from that passage. And if you could keep it open um, in your Bibles, whether that's on your phones or uh, in your paper copies, um, we're working our way through Thessalonians. And um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Just the songs we've had this morning as well, which help us engage with what we're reading here, that uh, we have a, a Lord who saves, a Lord who's holy. And a Lord who calls us to be community. And it was great having that new song that Dave's written and uh, introduced, which helps us focus as well on that outward working of love as fellowship. That's what we're going to be looking at today in this passage. I wonder how you show care, particularly in the workplace. When you think of employees, when you think of colleagues, Maybe if you're not in work at the moment, but at school or college or university, think about that front line where you spend most of your time. Employee morale definitely is big business, and it's a big issue for businesses. How we care for each other, especially in the context of our work, makes a massive impact, doesn't it, to productivity, to unity, to mental and physical health. When I was working with Ministry to Business in the business community in the city centre, I remember attending a meeting that was hosted at one of the fastest growing tech firms that was, was based in Manchester, uh, Booking.com. And uh, their story is fascinating as you see how they've developed. But we were in one of their redeveloped new buildings on Fountain Street. 
And uh, what was interesting, they were talking about how they've engaged with their employees. And one of the things they did was regular surveys and listening exercises where they'd hear what was going on and what people wanted, and particularly how to redevelop the site. And so they asked what things would the teams want to make their work environment a great place. Um, that list included the opportunity to have nerf gun battles for the coders so that they could let off steam which literally apparently there was this like they're all working away on their computers and the boss sort of described it as then next moment they're all running to a corner picking up guns and these blue pellets go everywhere um, and then they just sit back down and carry on coding. Um, hey, uh, there's a breakout space which includes a giant plastic swan which tim teams can sit in for creative meetings and a fully functioning pizza oven and a stocked bar area. And all of which the company's senior execs took seriously and implemented. Now, when their other colleagues in different buildings heard about this, they got very jealous. So ironically, the team unity stuff didn't quite work. But um, it, it's interesting. They were taking seriously, how can we show care? How can we do things in a way that help people? Another smaller firm I knew had a very simple policy, but very effective, of giving everyone in their um, staff team their birthday as an extra day off. And that went down superbly. Everyone appreciated it. You see, letting people know that we care is hugely integral, isn't it? It's something that each one of us value for healthy relationships, whether it's family life, whether it's work life, whether it's school or church. It fundamentally reflects who the Lord God is, the heart of God, the one who ultimately cares and loves for his creation and his people. And this is clearly on Paul's mind here in this passage we've read in chapter 2, verses 17 through to 310. This section is probably the most personal bit of the letter. It's like he opens up his heart. We get a real feel for how he loves these Christians, this small church in this bustling cosmopolitan city in North Greece called Thessalonica. And as we saw in chapter 1 a few weeks ago, verses 7 to 9, if you've got your Bibles open, you can just look at it over there, verses 7 to 9, this church had been incredibly fruitful. They'd been faithful, even though Paul had only been able to spend a, a month or so with these people before he was run out of town um, by uh, persecution that came from the religious Jewish people and the religious Greek people that were discrediting and attacking Paul's work. And then Paul was forced to travel south through Greece and eventually ending up in Athens, which is where he's writing this letter from. And he's desperately worried about these converts to Jesus Christ, these young converts. They were, they were facing pressure. It seems this new church were being told by opponents that, that Paul was a bit of a charlatan, a bit of a religious con man probably, looking to get rich off them. And then when the first bit of trouble, the heat's turned up, he, he scarpers, he does a runner. He fled like a coward. And what we saw a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, Paul defends his ministry. He defends his methods. He wasn't lying. He wasn't using flattery. He wasn't tricking them. He wasn't being deceitful with the gospel. He, he worked hard. He didn't want their money. He was a model of love and care for them, and he describes that as being like a mother and father in the faith to them. You see, his priority with his team was always to strengthen, comfort, and urge these Christians on in their walk with God. 
And their response to the gospel, as we saw last week as Jez took us through verses 13 to 16 of chapter 2, was amazing. They received the gospel that Paul preached as the very word of God. They believed it in spite of the suffering and persecution that it caused. But Paul, out of his care, out of his worry, have they survived? Have these Christians continued to love the Lord? Or had they defriended him? Had they ghosted him because of these lies that were spreading after that abrupt and forced exit? And so as we come to this passage, I've just got three points that we'll, we'll, we'll walk our way through. Um, as we look at this true community, this loving community, um, the first thing I want us to just explore is desire. Desire to be with one another. Look at verses 17 to 20 with me, and I'll just read those first two, verses 17. You can hear the impassioned and emotive tone, I hope, here. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, literally face to face, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. You see, Paul earlier described himself as their spiritual mother in verse 7 and their spiritual father in verse 11. That's how he, he felt towards this church. He invested so much. And that verb translated torn away is, is literally, he, he was orphaned. The translators have got it spot on there, orphaned. And Paul flips the picture, therefore. You know, one moment he's father and mother. Now he's talking as if he's a child that's been pulled away from his family, from his parents. He, it's, it's unbearable to be separated from family. Just think at the moment, one of the many tragedies of the war in the Ukraine is the millions of children who have been affected, who have been torn away from parents desperately seeking escape. Save the Children reported, and this is back in March, so I'm not sure how things have progressed, but they estimated 100,000 children living in orphanages and institutions in Ukraine that are at risk of being left behind, being permanently separated, forgotten by families uh, and, and as the war continues. We just think of the horrific shooting that Joel rightly prayed for the families in Texas. Those two adults and 19 children brutally murdered, ripped away. You see, this is the emotive level Paul is talking about. This is, those things we've just talked about in our world now need prayer and support. It's agonizing to think of what those people are going through. And Paul feels this towards these Christians. That's a profound depth of love. Spiritually torn away. Left vulnerable, alone, hostile to, to grow as Christians. How are they going to manage it? Would they be like the seed that Jesus talked about on the rocky ground in his parable that received the word joyfully, but when trouble or persecution comes along, because of the word, they quickly fall away? Mark 4. And this drove Paul to action. What does he say again? Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We wanted to come to you. 
Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. You see, that word for intense longing, the Greek word used there, is the same word used for lust. Paul had, in other words, an epic desire for their presence. He was driven to see them. It was, it was so big, that feeling. And verse 20, he describes them, how? As his joy, look at it, his joy and crown. Wow. That's a pretty immense thing to call a group of people, isn't it? In other words, what, what's happening with you affects me. If you're in pain, I feel it. We're intimately linked now as believers. And yet the plans he made to get to them were thwarted, we're told. There's an accuser, there's someone at work, this Satan, who is described elsewhere in the New Testament and throughout the Bible as the great enemy of God, Jesus' enemy, whose mission is to snatch glory from God, to destroy God's people. And as one writer put it, it is idle to speculate in what specific way this might have happened could be a legal injunction that was left over from when Jason and the Christians were bailed out. Maybe there was a, a legal imposition that Paul could never come back. It could be ill health, but we're not told. He doesn't tell us. But, as the writer goes on, it would be more foolish to ignore its reality, this spiritual attack as a dimension of gospel work. You see, Paul is not cooking up an excuse here uh, for, for his failure like a school child might as they're explaining why they haven't done their homework. Uh, one teacher on a Reddit thread um, shared that one pupil told me his pet parrot flew onto the fireplace and caught fire. It then proceeded to fly around the sitting room and the dad tried to hit it with a frying pan because he was afraid the curtains would go up in flames if the parrot went close to them. The dad hit it into the kitchen and then grabbed it and threw it under a tap because you have to throw a parrot under a tap if it's on fire. He then said with all the drama, he'd forgotten to do his homework. Of course, the teacher carries on. I let him off because it was the most creative story he'd come up with all year. Thankfully, no parrots were hurt in that incident at all. No, Paul isn't delving into his imagination. As Jesus experienced, he knows the kingdom of darkness is active against God's work. There is a spiritual battle. This is serious stuff, which directly affects the Thessalonian Christians, as it does all believers. Look at how he says it in chapter 3, verse 5. What's his fear there? The tempter tries to pull us away. But it is a battle where the result is already decided. Jesus is the victorious king. Verse 19 of chapter 2. He is the one who is coming. He is returning. We'll see more of that in the next two chapters. But he is the Lord who is victorious. The devil only acts within the permissive will of God. Like a fierce dog that's held on a tight lead, God rules over evil. It can only go so far. It's hedged in. And God judges it. He will crush evil. Wrong will be righted. And so Paul doesn't use super spiritual language to excuse what is, what is happening, but he does give the cosmic kingdom perspective. 
Everything is seen in the light of Jesus' return. Did you see that so clearly in verse 19? Opposition to the gospel is a reality. We must be awake to it. Because the relationships we have with each other truly matter. They are a spiritual cosmic issue, as well as a very practical everyday reality. And were you surprised that Paul describes the Thessalonians at this point as his joy and crown? Let's think about that. It's natural, isn't it, to think as Christians, we would describe Christ that way. He is our joy. He is our glory. That comes out clearly in his second letter. Paul describes Jesus' glory that way in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians in verse 10. But here, Paul describes the Thessalonians like an athlete's laurel crown or a, a gold medal like Man City had as they won the title, and unfortunately Liverpool didn't last night, commiserations, but the runner-up still gets a medal, but doesn't really count, does it? Um, what we see there, though, is his joy at these people. He's clearly saying they're his treasure. What he sees clearly, and what we need to as well, is... As we stand before Jesus Christ, secure in the salvation that he alone gives, as he evaluates all that we did in life in response to his love, won't it be amazing? Won't it be joy-filling to see those whose lives we've been involved with standing there, praising Jesus as well? Those people we've invested in. Those people we've had the joy of sharing the gospel with, of building each other up, standing there singing Christ's praise. This is why he longs for them. This is why it's such a big deal. He wants them there in eternity. Just like a parent longing to see their children and to share in their successes and achievements, so Paul loves and longs for these believers. Their good news is his good news. Their thriving and flourishing in Christ is something he shares in. And I hope automatically right now that that's something that's gripping your heart as a believer. I mean, as I wrestled with this passage, I was thinking, do I share this? Is this fruit in my life? We, we need to ask ourselves, do we desire that for others? Is that our hope and concern for each other as believers? God has put us together as a church at this time, in this location, for a season. Surely this is part of what he wants for us as a community. Does that shape the way we pray for one another? As we think about other Christians, just what we were hearing from Greg about Redeemer, a church we helped plant back in 2018, it's easy to think, oh, out of sight, out of mind. They're doing their thing over there. It's only a 10-minute drive away. And yet, we forget. Is our desire to be for each other. Then secondly, a decision. In verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3, there's a decision to strengthen faith. And what good is it expressing love if you don't back it up with action? Now, I came across this story that's from May 2000, long time ago, but as you'll hear, I'm sure these events are still etched on Stella Young's memory. At the time, she was a 44-year-old bank manager, um, sorry, a manager of the Citizens Advice Bureau, and willingly motivated by love, 
She was hurled from a medieval catapult by her boyfriend, Richard Wicks. She duly flew 120 feet above a field in Somerset at a speed of 50 miles an hour towards a safety net. However, there wasn't a happy landing. She bounced on the net and was immediately propelled out and then fell to the ground, causing serious injury. Her boyfriend seemed pretty unruffled. In the report, he said, Stella was petrified before she took off and she hit the ground like a sack of spuds. She will make a full recovery, but she has made it quite clear she won't be doing it again. You know, what on earth was going on that possessed them to do that in the first place? But apparently, this was his work. He was designing something that could be useful. I don't know what, but there was a need. Mr. Wick said the accident would not halt his plans to develop the catapult for commercial use. <laughs> when he talked about improving the design, he said we need a bigger net. <laughs> now, I don't know whether Stella and Richard are still together. I hope for her sake maybe there's been some good relational changes that at least he's not going to catapult her. But it's clearly a sign of dedication. Action backing up love. On any metric, her expression of love and commitment was costly and quite literally over the top. But the Apostle Paul demonstrates his love, his concern, with a costly devotion, with a costly decision. He sends Timothy to them. Now, he doesn't put him in a catapult and flying him back, but it is costly. It is painful. Just think about this, as he said um, in, in verse 1. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. So when he uses that word we, he's got his team. So there's Silas and Timothy who are in Berea. They come to Athens. And whether he sends a message that tells Timothy en route or um, in Berea, look, go back to the Thessalonians. Silas is also deployed in another mission because Paul spends time in Athens, maybe a month, maybe more, on his own. But it's a team decision. So he's in Athens, and he says, we sent Timothy in the letter, we, we sent Timothy to you, the Thessalonians, our brother and co-worker in God's service, in, in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in the faith. You see, Paul's in Athens and he couldn't cope any longer. Did you notice that in verse 5? It's repeated again, just to underline. Without any news, he needed news of the Thessalonians. How are they doing? It's genuine concern. He knew that any tests and trials the church faced hadn't taken God by surprise. He, he knows God's in control of all things. It's his sovereign wisdom. These tests would mature. They'll strengthen the church. They'll refine the believers, even if it causes hardship and pain. But would the Thessalonians be blown off course? Would, would the trials and persecution sap their strength to endure? Would it thin them out in an unhelpful way? W would there be a temptation to dilute Jesus's exclusive lordship, particularly when you think they're in this Greek culture where everything's blended, with a Roman you know, authority over them, where it's more comfortable to bow down to Rome to be a bit more secure? How are they going to fare? Paul honestly worries that the hard work that he, Tim, and Silas had invested might have been in vain in verse 5, useless, like, just gone. It's the same word he uses in chapter 2, verse 1, which is translated in our editions as without results, fruitless. 
So Tim is selected, not only to provide encouragement, but did you notice to bring encouragement back? And there, can you see our relationships as believers are for mutual love and encouragement? It's a two-way street. We need each other. It shouldn't shock us, but it does. We need each other. We're not meant to exist as little islands. And so that means surely making practical, sometimes costly decisions, doesn't it? About the time we'll spend with believers. About how we use our gifts to build up each other. Can I just state again that one of the most simplest things you can do in the next couple of weeks is to sign up for the big church day that we've got organized on the 12th of June. It's dead simple, but I know it's costly. It's a Saturday. It's the majority of the day, together with people that, do I really know them? Do I want to be there? I've got a ton of jobs to do. It's probably better, other, better things I could do, catch up with some Netflix stuff or read a book or get some shopping done or tidy the loft or clear out the garage. You know, the list goes on and these things start to look attractive because it's costly. It's emotionally hard to hang out with people, to get to know them. And yet this is a spiritual work. This is a gospel work to build each other up. It'll be a great way of meeting more people, of having one or two conversations that are game changers, that just open up relationships. It's great to see those who have signed up for the, the meal we're doing, that Alia's organizing, moving around different homes and houses, being hosted together, and just having that time with one another. And it was a very costly decision for Paul, more so to send Timothy. If you think about it, this is his close companion. He's called a brother a co-worker serving God. Timothy was vital in Paul's work. Imagine the impact they would have had if he had stayed in Athens. Paul's on his own. Imagine the emotional support that Paul would have had if it was Tim and Paul going into the Mars Hill and having that dialogue with these great big heavyweight philosophers to know that there's someone praying right next to him in that. But Paul makes a costly decision, send Timothy to Thessalonica for the benefit of those Christians. And this was also a terrific opportunity for Timothy, wasn't it, to grow in ministry. He was taking on the role of the father and mother. He's doing the strengthening, encouraging, and urging. It's what he had seen Paul doing, and now he's doing it. It was his responsibility to develop and grow the gospel work there. And I suppose we need to hold on to and not forget that in the face of satanic spiritual attack and persecution, here's the interesting thing. Paul's wise plan was to send a humble preacher. Think about that. His confidence rests in the word of God to do God's work. When the word of God is shared and sown through preaching and teaching, that will strengthen, stabilize, and spread God's kingdom. And in many eyes, I reckon sending Timothy looked quite pathetic, quite weak, quite insufficient. Surely we need a, a more sophisticated media campaign, maybe more financial resources, maybe a team of world-class speakers of great youth ministry that can go in and rejuvenate things. No, God's word through God's people will build God's kingdom. And I really hope, this is my deep prayer for Grace Church, 
that we can live this out at Grace Church, that we can go deeper into this. Essentially, every member ministry, every disciple doing Jesus' work. You see, we all have gifts and talents to use for his kingdom. And they're to be used in the context he's placed us, which is right here, right now. The next month, the next year. We don't want to be passengers on a cruise ship expecting people, a few people to run around doing the jobs. Instead, let's be proactive. What is it the Lord is laying on your heart to serve in? Whether that's within our church community or beyond, but as an extension of gospel work. How can you use your gifts to build each other up? How are you contributing if you're part of life group in that community, that small group setting? Could you roll up your sleeves and be part of things practically Sunday by Sunday? Maybe behind the scenes in ways that will help develop Grace Church's ministry for the glory of Christ, not to build our name. Even just the simple thing of today, looking out for a newcomer, someone that you don't recognize, and just saying, hello, how are you? Dead simple, costly. Let's prioritize praying together. We've got the monthly prayer meeting this coming Wednesday. We use Zoom because we find that's easier and makes one less barrier for people to get to a physical building in an evening. We will be praying for our mission partners. That happens regularly. These people who are away from us but giving everything for God's glory. One hour. Okay, maybe one hour 15 if it runs over. In one month. Wow. We can stand together and build God's kingdom in prayer for people who are not just with us here physically but beyond doing God's work. That desire to see it grow. Perhaps you could help Joel. He needs more volunteers. He's had a, an influx of international uh, people needing, wanting English classes. It went from sort of, I think they would have 20 on a, a usual Tuesday evening for the English conversation class. He got 40 last week referred to him through different avenues. He needs a few more volunteers who can just log on on Zoom and have a chat with people. It really is simple. I've done it. Perhaps you could help with pastoral care. Perhaps it's with the missions team, being in contact with our mission partners, praying for them. You see, we have gifts. I'd love to explore that with you, so with the other elders, so with people in your life group. Discuss it this week when you look at this passage again. Come prepared to share. What does modeling gospel service, what are those costly decisions which invest in God's kingdom look like for you and for us? And then finally, we see delight. Verses 6 to 10 in chapter 3. A delight in standing firm with joy in Christ Jesus. You can hear the relief in Paul's voice, can't you? Verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith, for now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Praise the Lord! They're standing firm. Their faith is holding up under all the pressures. That is Paul's primary concern. And yes, there are gaps in their discipleship that need addressing in verse 10, which is what he goes on to tackle in the rest of the letter. But there's genuine 
faith-filled life. Wow. And the effect on this news has on Paul is remarkable, isn't it? Verse 7, in all our distress we were encouraged, but now we really live. Again, you can see that two-way street of mutual encouragement. In fact, Timothy is literally evangelizing Paul with the good news about the Thessalonians that spurs Paul on. And you see, they went to Thessalonians with the Thessalonians with good news, and now it's coming back to the one who sent it. It's, it's a great big loving, a two-way mutuality thing going on here, as Paul gets good news and is spurred on in the ministry that he will continue. Angus McClay, the um, Anglican minister who's written a helpful preaching book on this letter, puts it like this. I love this explanation. It's like a situation where you're waiting for news from hospital following the operation of a dear friend. Whilst there's no news, your life feels like it's on hold. But when the news comes through that everything is all right, you breathe a sigh of relief. There's joy. And you can get on with life with renewed zest. It's a lovely way of summing it up, isn't it? The gospel is clearly at work. Christians are standing firm. Their relationship with Paul is healthy. There's longing and thankfulness for each other. Can you see that's a healthy church? That's the dynamic we want to see nurtured, isn't it? And how vital that is in our daily walk as believers. Do you rejoice? Do you give thanks to God when you hear of good news of believers? Does it bring a smile to your faith? It should do. A smile on the faith, a smile in our faith, an uplift. All too often in church stuff, it's very easy to become cynical, to hear someone else's good news and go, oh, why isn't that happening over here for us? Oh, if only that was going on here. It brings joy. It spurs us on. And where Paul goes with that is to prayer. He takes that to the Lord. And I'm looking forward to next Sunday. Namdi, one of our elders, will unpack this powerful prayer in verses 11 to 13. We wanted just to have one Sunday on that prayer to learn how Paul prays, to then really rub it in and go, oh, wow, this is the sort of stuff we can be taking on board. Now, on Tuesday evening, I had the privilege of hearing Nancy Guthrie teaching on caring well for those who are grieving. And it was lovely to be there with uh, members of the church family, so with Emily, Laura, uh, Becky, and Hannah. And this session was held at St. Clement's Church in Openshaw. And if you go to their YouTube channel, you will be able to find Nancy's stuff online to watch, and I recommend it. It was so encouraging and to, to be there listening to Nancy and to be taught by her, schooled by her, in how to pray for people when they're suffering. And how she then, in one session, just walked through 11 New Testament passages, turning each to prayer, specifically praying for one of her friends, a, a woman called Sarah, a pastor's wife in Memphis with stage 4 cancer. And so here we were, gathered together, with Nancy teaching us, walking us through these prayers, praying through passages like 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 to 9, or 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, calling to mind people in need of God's presence and purpose in their trials. And it struck me, in that moment, and as I reflected back on it, we were engaged at that point, just there, as a small example of this worked example of a, a desire to support fellow believers. 
of uh, a delight and joy of knowing that the Lord is in control. He's the one sustaining people. And there's that intentional decision that we need to make disciples. We intentionally decided to go there to invest time together, listening, learning in that space, meeting with other people as well and, and encouraging others over coffee after and, and stuff like this. Could have done other things. Could have spent a bit more time on my sermon prep. I mean, you'd probably say, yeah, that would have been helpful. But it's a costly decision. And so as we make disciples, whether it's giving up time to pray, whether it's making time to visit someone, whether it's making time to open up God's word with someone, whether it's giving financially, whether it's being hospitable, whether it's making the first move in reconciliation, so that we'll stand firm in the Lord. I hope in some way, as we've heard Paul's heart, inspired by the Holy Spirit, our hearts have been strangely warmed, strangely convicted, as the Holy Spirit has brought to light things that we can do to show this desire, this costly decisions, the delight that we have of helping people and being helped to stand firm in the Lord, knowing we will see Christ face to face. That day is coming, realizing the joy of other people standing there with us in his presence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word to us. Please forgive us for not loving fellow believers as we should. Thank you that Jesus loves each of us beyond measure. And so help us to love our brothers and sisters here at Grace Church and beyond. As Paul has shown, as Timothy and Silas have shown us in a worked example. Lord, may we love as Christ loves. Give us joy and strength to encourage them and to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ so that together we would stand firm, that we'd be settled in adversity, that we'd be zealous in thankfulness and expectant for Jesus' return. In Christ's name, amen.